Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hello and welcome to you all. Sorry, there was like a dramatic pause there for some reason before the program began, and I'm not precisely sure why, but uh, I guess just to heighten suspense for the show here. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North. It is Tuesday, August 22nd, 2023, just after 4 p.m. here in the dirty, leeching east of Canada, which is funny. I mean, I spend a lot of time in Alberta, and I used to work in Alberta guest hosting on, actually guest hosting for the woman who's now the premier of Alberta, Danielle Smith, on 770 CHQR. And the one thing that I always found so jarring whenever I was in in the West is how they view Ontario as being the East, whereas Ontario views itself as, as being the center of the world. It's like, oh, no, no, no. East is like Newfoundland and Nova Scotia. But uh, wherever you are in this lovely nation that we call the Dominion of Canada, at least that I call the Dominion of Canada, we welcome you very much. And I'm so glad to have you here. I was going to do a little bit of prop comedy on the show today, and I was going to like bring a, a lighter of some kind and maybe set something aflame. But then I realized you don't actually need a lighter to set anything aflame in this day and age. You can do it with your words alone. So uh, do I have a, a piece of paper? I've got a piece of paper. I, I hope this isn't anything important. It's uh... Oh, no, this is the phone number of a woman who uh, banged my car in a, a parking lot, but it's already been sorted out. So uh, I can burn this. This is okay. I oppose carbon taxes. Carbon taxes are bad. Oh, that's unfortunate. It was supposed to light a flame when you say that. Such is the uh, point put forward by Catherine McKenna, the former Environment Minister of Canada. You'd think she'd know these things. She says uh, on Twitter here, conservative politicians want to fight about a price on carbon pollution with the indignation of a question mark. Uh, you want to make it free to pollute while Canadians pay with their lives threatened, homes destroyed, and their communities obliterated. So what are you going to do? You are the arsonist. Uh, so Catherine McKenna there, with your words, thoughts, and feelings alone, establishing that if you oppose carbon tax, if you uh, do not support a price on so-called carbon pollution, you are an arsonist. Now, she says this as the wildfires wage on and rage on and wage on, actually, in the West and the North, in the Northwest Territories and in Northern British Columbia. It's tragic. It is horrendous when you see people that have been displaced from their homes. We've seen in Maui that lives have been lost because of fires. This is very serious stuff. And uh, it is happening in a context that is not about politics and shouldn't be about politics. But Catherine McKenna says, if you are a conservative who opposes a carbon tax, you are an arsonist. Let me just try one more time. I'm going to think really, really, really hard about why I don't want to pay more at the gas pumps. No, nope, nothing. Well, I got to say, I cannot believe that Catherine McKenna ever led us astray. That I, I did not have uh, foresee. I could not have foreseen at all. Uh, it is uh, quite fascinating to me, if you think about it here, that uh, we are seeing more and more of this nasty rhetoric, this uh, catastrophism that we were speaking about a couple of weeks ago with Joe Oliver on this show from people that are pro proclaiming to be guided by science and governed by science, but are actually anything of 
of the sort. They are uh, putting political talking points and masking it with sciencey sounding language and speaking about climate and the weather and the environment in these catastrophic doom and gloom terms uh, with an ask that is attached to it. And that ask is always about political control. That ask is always about them wanting us to have to pay more, do less, use less, eat less, travel less. And oh yeah, by the way, pay more. And if you don't want to pay more, according to Catherine McKenna, you are just an arsonist. Now, my colleague Elie Kensin-Nantel asked Pierre Polyev about this in Ottawa just a couple of hours after Catherine McKenna's tweet. Take a look. Yes. Catherine McKenna, the former Liberal Minister, accused Conservatives of being arsonists over the opposition to the carbon tax. So what's your response to her comment and what do you say to climate alarmists or maybe people that say that not having a carbon tax will lead to a climate catastrophe? We, I, what I really worry about is the increased radicalization of rhetoric by Liberals, particularly Justin Trudeau but uh, the nastiness and meanness that they're directing at people who disagree with their policies, whether it's Trudeau's nasty comments directed at Muslim parents, or whether it is him jabbing his finger in people's faces, and now a former Liberal minister saying that anybody who doesn't want to pay higher taxes is an arsonist. Really? Really? As if if we paid higher taxes, we'd have less forest fires? Come on. Let's get back to some common sense in this country and let's start to bring our people together instead of tearing the country apart. It seems like a fairly common sense position that uh, Catherine McKenna, the environment minister, uh, once in Canada saying that arsonism is or arson comes from opposing carbon taxes would be a little bit absurd. But this is what passes for the liberals now. And you may wonder if, OK, maybe I'm punching down by uh, talking about some former environment minister. But even though she doesn't have a position in government, she still is very much a leading voice, not just in Canada, but around the world on purveying that climate catastrophism I was talking about earlier on in the show and in previous episodes. And I would also say she's still very much looked at in, in some ways as this sort of spiritual leader on the green file for the liberals. It's now Jonathan Wilkinson that has her role. Uh, Stephen Gilbo, who's, I mean, they talk about climate criminals uh, in terms of like the big oil and gas companies. They all call them climate criminals. Stephen Gilbo is literally a climate criminal because he was charged with a criminal offense while he was engaging in climate protests. So Stephen Gilbo is a literal climate criminal criminal uh, who has uh, bungled a number of files and is now on the transport file. But Stephen Gilbo had uh, tweeted, and you can see it on the screen there, uh, that uh, this is about Tracy Gray, the conservative MP for the Kelowna area, that she wants to fan the flames by making pollution free again. So, you know, make America great again. Uh, the conservatives want to make pollution free again. Raw. He's taking aim at the fact that Tracy Gray is pointing out that Canadians cannot afford Trudeau's carbon tax and that we should axe the tax and bring home lower prices. Now, uh, the Liberals claim to be all on board with fighting inflation. The Liberals claim that they're aware of the inflation crisis. They know about it. They're on it. They're on top of it. Just who you want running the problems here. But uh, the reality is that Canadians cannot afford to fill up their gas tanks. There was a, a tweet uh, from the Ottawa Food Bank, I believe it was, earlier earlier today that I saw just moments before I, I went on air saying that they are unable to find enough food 
to distribute. So they've had to cancel volunteer shifts. People that said, you know what, I'll roll up my sleeves and help the food, food bank. I'll help you sort food and distribute it. They said, well, we don't actually have any food to distribute because uh, our donor base are struggling with increased cost of things. So uh, people cannot afford to buy groceries for themselves, let alone afford a surplus to donate food to a food bank. So absolutely, when the conservatives are saying, well, perhaps this arbitrary carbon tax that does nothing to help Canadians, but does in fact punish them, is something we could cut. So the liberals are trying to vilify the conservatives for opposing a carbon tax that even the most do-goody Canadians cannot afford right now. And the number of hurdles and barriers and restrictions they're putting in place in the name of environmentalism is asinine. One that we talked about a couple of weeks ago is these electricity regulations that are coming about a federal government forcing provinces to be net zero uh, by an arbitrary date in ways that will only result in increased costs to consumers. Now, I've been very very heartened to see the Alberta government push back against this. Premier Danielle Smith has said uh, this is unrealistic, as has her environment minister, uh, Rebecca Schultz. And uh, Minister Schultz joins me now. It's always good to have her on the show. Uh, minister, I know you're very kind. You've uh, got to get to a flight soon, but I, I'm glad you're here. And, and thank you for, for doing this. Now, just to confirm here, you do not believe that opposing carbon taxes uh, is arson, right? You know what? We're a very to the carbon tax here in Alberta. And we hear it every day. I mean, just it, it was just yesterday, actually, I was speaking to a constituent about their power bills. And he said, you know, Rebecca, look, as my MLA, when I break down my bill, the carbon tax and inflation, you know, like this is hurting everyday Canadians. So uh, no, the carbon, the carbon tax, especially the consumer carbon tax, it is not actually having an impact on emissions or our environment. Talk to me about these clean energy, uh, these are so-called clean energy regulations, these electricity regulations, and uh, why Alberta is standing so firm on this in a way that uh, right now we haven't really seen many other provinces do. What's the problem in your view? You know, there's a, there's a few. First of all, it's affordability and reliability of power for everyday Albertans and Canadians. You know, I would, I would suggest that the Albertans that I represent and Canadians right across our country, they sure do expect that when they turn on their light switch that, you know, they actually have access to power. And that's what's at risk here. The other thing is that uh, th these aren't Alberta's numbers. These are independent numbers, numbers from groups like the Public Policy Forum that have said, look, this is going to cost $1.7 trillion. At some point, somebody has to pay for that. And that ultimately will be Albertans and Canadians, whether it's on their bills or through their taxes. So, um, you know, those are our two main concerns, but also in some cases, they are relying on technology that does not exist, has not yet been tested uh, anywhere in the world. And they also haven't made the infrastructure investments to get us anywhere near this by 2035. There are a couple of different dimensions to this. On one hand, there's the, like, does it actually make sense? And is this rooted in science? And is this uh, rooted in even what the federal government says are its key objectives? And then there's also the federalism aspect of this, which is that is it the federal government's responsibility to come and manipulate effectively how provinces manage their electricity systems? And I know the uh, carbon tax uh, case, when that first went towards the, the courts, was uh, favorable in, in Alberta, but at the Supreme Court of Canada, not as much. Uh, is this a similar dynamic here? Or do you think there's even more of a case that, no, 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 this is provincial domain and Ottawa should butt out? You know, this is absolutely an area of provincial jurisdiction. And 
you know, when it comes to power generation, that's one thing. The other thing that this uh, clean electricity regulation does is it really limits the natural gas baseload that we rely on, especially, I mean, in Alberta, but other places across Canada in the middle of winter where the sun isn't shining and the wind isn't blowing and we need natural gas baseload. We don't have access to hydro uh, like some other provinces do. And so uh, that also impacts our, our energy development, which again is an area of provincial jurisdiction. So you're right, it's not only unrealistic, um, unachievable, it's also completely unconstitutional uh, and of course, unaffordable for everyday Albertans and Canadians. So uh, those are some of our concerns. I mean, you know, when we look at some of the actual aspects of this bill and, or sorry, of these regulations, um, the biggest concern, um, you know, maybe to some would be this 18 day limit, 450 hours in terms of how we can use our natural gas to support uh, reliability within the system. When I think about the month of January, here in Alberta, I mean, 18 days, that doesn't even get us through the coldest month of the year. And after that, it's not going to be legal to provide um, power to the grid using natural gas as generation. That absolutely doesn't make sense. And so you're exactly right. Myself, our premier, we have said um, absolutely under no circumstances are we accepting these clean electricity regulations here in Alberta. Uh, and then we, of course, have uh, Stephen Gilbeau uh, going over to China, basically, which is always the a blind spot in a lot of the climate alarmist uh, discussions on this. I mean, whether it's John Kerry, who talks about uh, the need to uh, reduce your emissions, uh, but not so much in China. I mean, here we have China, which is one of the most coal-dependent nations in the world, uh, whose emissions dwarf uh, anywhere else in the world, including Canada. And I, I know you've uh, pointed this out to him. Have you gotten a response yet with your uh, concerns? Uh, you know what? Not not on this front. And we will be continuing our discussions with the federal government. Um, Premier Smith has set up some bilateral uh, tables. So we are going to have discussions about both the electricity regulations uh, and impending oil and gas emissions cap. And so um, these will be part of, of those discussions going forward. But you're exactly right. I mean, you know, I, I don't think it's acceptable to pick fights with provinces and, you know, essentially increase the cost of living uh, and risk the reliability of our grids here in Canada while saying, you know, here we need an arbitrary date of 2035, but for China, it's okay uh, to work on 2060. And so, you know, when we look at here in Alberta, our plans are around carbon neutrality. We have an aspiration to be carbon neutral uh, by 2050. What we're saying is let us do this in our own way, in a way that doesn't put at risk uh, the affordability or the reliability of our power grid for everyday Albertans that, that rely on that, you know, and being a parent of young kids, I, I do think of what it's like to be up in the middle of the night with a young child, you know, you flip on the switch, you, you expect there to be power. I mean, this is just, you know, I, I just can't see how um, this is something that Albertans or Canadians uh, can accept. And so we're going to continue uh, to defend um, Albertans and, and everyday people right across our country from from these types of legislation, but it, it's not just that. I mean, the plastics ban is another example that we pointed out to the federal government where, you know, their legislation is having the exact opposite impact. We have Calgary Co-op here in Calgary paired up uh, with an entrepreneur here who developed a fully compostable bag. It is not plastic, and yet it is banned by ECCC. Uh, and so, you know, I pointed out to the minister, this doesn't make any sense. You're having the exact opposite impact. Same thing with an oil and gas cap. If you limit the amount of natural gas or LNG coming out of Alberta, coming out of Canada, displacing coal-fired generation in other parts of the world, we're having the opposite impact on emissions worldwide. 
we have an opportunity right now in Alberta, in Canada, to lead with sustainable energy development, emissions reduction, uh, address energy security and affordability and reliability. Um, you know, but unfortunately, the federal government seems to be choosing ideology over common sense every single time. All right. Well, I appreciate you squeezing us in. I know you've got a uh, plane to catch there. Uh, Minister Rebecca Schultz, the Environment Minister in Alberta. Always a pleasure. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks so much, Andrew. All right. And I should just say, I mean, this this whole thing from Catherine McKenna is absurd, but it, it really is reflective, I believe, of the government's absurdity on this. And a lot of these targets uh, are that they put out are, are incredibly arbitrary. I mean, Rebecca Schultz was just saying there, you've got China that uh, gets until 2060 to go carbon neutral, but these people have to do it by 2035 and then, oh, maybe just 2030 and maybe 2050. And these are all lofty aspirational goals. The one that you hear at all the big... Uh, UN climate summits is about the need to reduce global warming to 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels. And uh, no one could really agree on 1.5 at the Paris climate agreements because it was all going to require just a complete deindustrialization, essentially just shut down electricity altogether. And you don't even get to light candles because they might be a little bit too carbon inhospitable. So they agreed on two degrees and then work really hard to get to 1.5. And then Glasgow comes along and then the Charmel shakedown, which was just last year. And all of a sudden it's 1.5. They're all talking about 1.5 again, 1.5. And if you're a, a Canadian, whether you're uh, one of uh, Rebecca Schultz's constituents in Alberta, or you live in Northern Ontario or Eastern Canada, uh, or even in Quebec, which pretends it's above oil and gas, but is disconnected from the realities of the world outside of the hydroelectric grid, apparently. And all of these people that are saying, listen, I, I actually don't care about any of this stuff if my own household isn't looked after. And this is the big flaw in what the government is doing right now, is that they are imposing something on provinces, on communities, and by extension on families without caring at all about the consequences, without caring about the consequences of the family that can't afford to pay the carbon tax, without caring about the consequences of the family who can't afford to pay its electricity bill or its home heating, the family who uh, can't afford the increase in grocery prices that carbon taxes and other related things are doing, exacerbating existing inflation. And all of this just continues to go on. In a government that just does not care, a government that believes genuinely that it should be above all of these rules that are for the little people. Now, uh, you know, we talked a few weeks ago about Christian Freeland, who's getting up there. Uh, you know, Christian Freeland, who says uh, cutting your Disney Plus subscription is the way you fight inflation. Christian Freeland, who says, you know, we all need to do a little bit less. And then you look and realize that she commutes effectively daily, like three or four times a week from Toronto to Ottawa. Uh, taking a plane. I've seen her on planes in business class before. So uh, this is a woman who knows how to travel and enjoys travel. And I like travel. So I don't judge her for that. I judge her for doing it while telling us that we are all the problem and telling us that we're the ones who need to do less. And, you know, Catherine McKenna, that believes that with your thoughts and words, you can cause ours. And when I pointed this out on Twitter, everyone's like, oh, you don't understand metaphor. Yeah, I understand metaphors. And I also understand, uh, you know, lunacy masquerading as cogent policy. Uh, one thing I want to talk about here, just shifting gears entirely, is the idea of academic freedom. And the really the, the whole point of this discussion, whenever we've brought up free speech and academic freedom, is that there is a value that comes in people being able to disagree in a free society and, and to weave this into the climate narrative. 
One of the big problems we've had in discussions of climate science is that there's often been this very phony and artificial consensus, the so-called consensus. I don't know why my air quotes are like sagging one way or another. There we go. Because uh, I'm was i looking at like myself back and like my camera is tilted, so I didn't quite know where the air quotes were supposed to be. I need like an air quote augmentation to you know balance them out and perk them up a bit. But uh, in any case, the whole point of the... I totally lost my train of thought there. Don't mind me. Uh, the point that I was getting at there is that on the climate debate and on the climate science debate, we've had uh, more often than not this phony consensus in which uh, doctors uh, of oh, physics, of geology, of all of these other things have been told that uh, their perspectives don't matter if they go against the narrative. And we've had uh, a silencing of debate. We've had a chilling of debate. And it's very similar to what we saw on certainly in supercharge in the COVID era, where uh, it was very clear early on that there was an official narrative and anyone, no matter how many letters you had after your name, how many years of schooling, anyone who diverged from the capital O, capital N official narrative would be silenced. And it wasn't just that they would be subjected to uh, cancel culture. In some cases, you had people's regulatory licenses, their ability to practice medicine uh, be jeopardized, and people were suspended, people were removed from colleges, and certainly people lost jobs. There are alleged crimes to uh, be dissidents in an area in which I'd say we needed more debate and more skepticism and far less deference. Now, uh, one of the people who stands out uh, and I don't use the word lightly, a hero of the last several years is Dr. Matt Strauss. Now, Dr. Strauss, you've seen on this program before, he's been a, a tremendous advocate for not COVID denialism, not anti-vaccine rhetoric of just science and medicine and of uh, taking a very traditional view of medicine, which is that you should try to personalize it to the patient and not uh, paint entire societies and countries with a one-size-fits-all solution when that may not fit their individual needs. And he's also spoken at great length about the harms, the adverse effects of some of the purported remedies and treatments, uh, such as lockdowns, for example. And uh, it's his COVID skepticism that uh, Dr. Strauss argues uh, jeopardized his role at Queen's University and ultimately led to him being forced out of that role. He has now uh, filed a lawsuit against Queen's. And uh, while we can't talk about this matter because it is before the legal system, I, I did think it was a good opportunity uh, to talk in general about uh, the retrospective on this last few years and uh, where it all went so wrong from an academic freedom, a medical freedom, and a free speech perspective. So uh, Dr. Matt Strauss joins me now. It's uh, good to talk to you again, Dr. Strauss. Thanks for coming back on the show. It's always nice to talk to you, Andrew. That, that introduction was was too kind. I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> well, it, it was very much deserved. And, and I, I say that uh, just to not to toot your horn even more, or maybe I am trying to do that. But I, I say that because a lot of people didn't realize how much doctors were putting on the line if they did speak out. And I would say there were probably some cases where uh, people didn't realize their own power and they didn't realize that they did have a voice. But but there were a lot of times where you know, people said, look, it's if I speak up, I lose the ability to practice medicine or they feared that was going to happen. And, and I was wondering where you sort of land on this now, having seen some of your colleagues and you've seen people go through this process. Do, do you think that the negative consequences for those who spoke out are over? Oh, no, certainly the negative consequences aren't over. I, I, and, I, and that's not just for physicians. Um, you know, since I started speaking out about some of my concerns about pandemic management, but especially since, uh, unfortunately, this news of my uh, lawsuit was made public, 
Um, I've heard from so many Canadians. I, a, a real estate agent texted me today to say that she had had a hard time uh, being able to speak out. Child, um, a child psychologist reached out to me, um, con a construction company executive. I've, I've heard from school board trustees. Like it, it seems to me that throughout Canada, exacerbated during the pandemic, but um, in, in all areas of, of public life, people feel that they can't speak their mind. And, and my, my fundamental concern is we're not going to have good public policy if we don't have good public debates about things. Um, so I, I, I see in every area that, that people are still suffering from things that happen to them. And, you know, we're, I think you were speaking about wildfires and climate change before I came on. Um, in some ways, we're suffering from it now. I want to hear from a forestry expert. I want to hear from firefighter experts about what could be better about our uh, wildfire response right now. So, so no, I don't. I don't think this problem has gone away, and I, th I think we all need to keep pushing against it and just speaking out for a free, open, liberal, dem democratic society where, where people can speak their mind. You know, in some cases, there is a reason that we have certain established facts in science. And I'd say in medicine, there are probably certain things that are fairly universal and, you know, certain medical treatments of history that have been lost to history and, and probably for good reason. So on one hand, we, we don't want the, the doctor that's going to come out and say, oh, you know what, I think bloodletting needs to make a comeback or something like that. But I, at the same time, we also need to have room to discuss and to debate. And when the science isn't clear to say, well, hang on, I, you know what, I'm I'm seeing in my patients is this or what I'm seeing in this study is this. And I, I, I'm curious where that, I mean, how should you let yourself as a physician be guided in that? Because on one hand, you want to do what's in the best interest of your patients. And, but on the other hand, if a problem is presenting itself, you don't always have time to go through that, you know, academic discourse and study when you're figuring it out. And I, I'm talking, of course, about the pandemic. I believe that it provided a sense of urgency for doctors. But, it, but what was the proper response to that without, you know, basically belaboring something where urgency was required? Um, so the practice of medicine needs to be sacrosanct. It needs to be approached with great humility and a lot of caution. And professional bodies do need to govern how medicine is practiced. So if, if I were going out saying, uh, Andrew Lawton, I think that um, you, should, you should treat your COVID with acupuncture, that would be wrong because acupuncture doesn't treat COVID and I'm not your physician. I haven't done a history and a physical on you. Um, we're, we're speaking in public. You're, you're not benefiting from um, physician-patient confidentiality right now. So I, I really take very seriously um, the, the sorts of recommendations that uh, physicians give to their patients. Um, but that, that's different than having a concern about public policy. And again, I don't, I don't want to get into the facts surrounding um, the case, but it, 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 fundamentally, it, it was made clear to me um, that the problem I was having with the administration was that I criticized the government. And that's, that's very different from practicing medicine. So physicians need to be able to criticize the government. They need to be able to criticize public policy. Um, but I 100% agree that physicians cannot <laughs> cannot recommend quackery to their patients, and nor should they be making medical rec recommendations to people who are not their patients in public or otherwise. The, the funny thing, too, about universities, and I, I don't want to draw a false equivalence between real science and, you know, political science, which I studied, but, you know, universities pride themselves on being anti-authoritarian in so many other disciplines. You know, they would celebrate a professor who uh, came out with some scathing report that condemned the government's approach on, you know, some national security law or something like that. And, and it's weird that that skepticism of academic inquiry and really the purpose of academic inquiry, which in university medicine, I think, is incredibly important is completely gone on this. The, the government says it, ergo, we just accept it. Yeah, I, I think this is a bit new. I think I think it was seen um, 
prior to COVID uh, around things to do with, I, I think I, obviously the, um, the Israel and Palestine conflict will be with us forever. But I know that on both sides of that, uh, that set of issues, professors ran afoul of their administration over the last 10 years. But uh, 100%, this, this idea of academic freedom being sacrosanct was a, a foundational principle to universities for hundreds of years. Um, in one meeting that I went to, I, I brought up Noam Chomsky, who is, a, a, I, I think it's fair to say, a, a radical leftist and, and a very interesting thinker, um, was was arrested by the government at one point for attending the Vietnam War protest. And as, as far as I'm aware, his institution uh, stuck um, with him uh, through thick and thin. And, and thank goodness, because I don't agree, I certainly don't agree with Chomsky on everything, but I, he's a, a profoundly interesting thinker and I have benefited from uh, hearing his thoughts and, I, and I've come to agree with him about uh, many of the things that he has said since, since the 60s and, and that arrest. One of the problems with, with governments, and I'm, I'm using the, them that in the broadest possible sense of, of just institutions in general, is that they are fallible and, and they know they're fallible in some cases. They don't often admit it. Uh, one example that comes to mind is Western University, my alma mater. You went there for, for med school as well. This is a university that had, uh, I think it was a one of a kind or maybe one of two in the country, which was this academic year putting in place a booster mandate for students, not just a vaccine mandate, but a, a booster mandate, which was supposed to go into effect in uh, September of, I guess it would have been 2022. And there was a rally held uh, around a year ago at which I spoke, at which you spoke, at which uh, your, your medical colleague, Dr. Martha Fulford spoke, and uh, a number of student activists. And Western eventually backed off that. Now, they didn't credit it to the backlash. They just kind of just let it die on the order paper. And then a few months later said it, it's no longer necessary. But uh, there's a case in which Western said one day the science requires a booster for students. And the next day said the science no longer requires a booster for students. Uh, so this deference that was expected of you at Queens and of people elsewhere is on its face absurd because how is that deference supposed to factor into a world in which governments will change what they believe the science leads them to? Yeah, I, thank you for bringing up that episode with Western, and I, I, I'm biased. I, I love Western. I'll always love Western. I'm glad they did the right thing in the end. Um, and I, I was so proud and lucky to be part of that that student led movement. Um, and but it, it is true that whoever was doing the university's press releases at that time, um, who I'm almost sure was not a scientist but a, a communications professional of some sort or another, was was claiming that the science was on their side. And science. Um, Science doesn't really take sides. Science is a process of open inquiry and, and debate and evidence gathering and um, argument synthesis. So it, it certainly wasn't the case in that instance that the science was on their side. Um, and I'm, I'm glad Dr. Fulford and I were able to to draw some attention to that. And I, I guess I, I I like to think that we had some effect on, on that ineffective and harmful mandate being withdrawn. Um, I, I would have liked to have seen a, maybe a bit of a mea culpa from the university on that point of view, but I, I still love them. When you look around at Queens in your situation, and again, I'm, I'm very careful. I, I know you can't talk about too much of, of the facts of the case. So if I'm if I'm asking too much, please let me know and I'll, I'll back off. But but when you look around and, and saw the dynamic with your colleagues there, were you just the outspoken one and, and everyone else was kind of the same as you were on this, but didn't want to put their neck out? Or or did you really feel like you were alone in this and, and that, you know, everyone else was really uh, adopting that line that you were expected to adopt genuinely? I certainly am not the only one who felt the way that I did. Um, 
I was the only outspoken one who, to my knowledge, I was the only outspoken one to maybe have a set of uh, views that I had. There were several, I had several outspoken colleagues who took maybe some views contrary to mine. And I would have loved to have had a debate with them, uh, either, you know, either on a podcast or somewhere at the university. Um, it, it became clear that you were, <clears throat> became clear to me at many universities that individuals who were towing the party line were allowed to be outspoken and people who uh, criticized the party line were not allowed to be outspoken. But I, um, throughout all of this, uh, like I said, I, I've heard from so many Canadians of all walks of life, but many of them were um, colleagues of mine at the university. And <clears throat> I'm not a political person. I'm not a political organizer. I, I never I, I never thought, oh, I know what I'll do. I'll, I'll organize a demonstration or, or I'll organize a petition or, or something like that. And, and maybe that was an error of mine. Um, but I... I they, you know, they had careers, they were doing work that was really important. Um, they also have mortgages and kids and, and that sort of thing. And I, it never occurred to me to um, ask someone to stick their own neck out. Um, it, but, and I, and I, I understand that it's, it, I, it, it's a, it's a lot to chew off. Uh, and, and one does not want to bite off more than one can chew. Well, one of the, the challenges, I mean, you literally had your, I, I, I didn't, I'd missed this part of your story. And I, when I read about it in the National Post, you had had your belongings shoved into a, a cardboard box. I mean, one of the most uh, sort of depersoning things that, you know, an employer can do. And, and you had that done to you. And, and at the time, if I recall, it had kind of blindsided you in a way because you weren't even aware there was an issue. Like you weren't even aware that you had been doing something even purportedly wrong in the university's eyes. Um. I would, I would rather not speak with great specificity about what I thought and when and, and what okay. I perceived and when, because I, um, uh, that, that would be a little bit from the hip and, and I, I guess one, one wants to be really, really careful well, about okay. let, let, let me, let me take a, a different approach then on, on this, which is to ask you how you feel about what happened moving beyond it. I know that's sort of a, a sappy question that I would, you know, criticize most hard-hitting journalists for asking, but but I'll ask you how you feel looking back at it, because I, I've never seen from you, even when this has been going on, anything resembling uh, bitterness or antipathy to Queens. In fact, I've only ever heard you speak highly about your your time at in academia, both as a student and as a, as on the, the admin side. I guess I have a few things to say about that. One is I, I it was a great privilege. It was um, the best job I've ever had getting to to teach medical students. Um, and you know, I still practice medicine. It, it's always a privilege to get to look after, uh, folks who are having a hard time, uh, who are ill. So, um, and, and to my former colleagues, even the ones who disagreed with me, um, I, 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 I honestly have nothing but, but love. Um, I, I this lawsuit is a dispute with, with some, some elements of the administration, but, but frankly, I, I, I received, um, not just from colleagues, uh, uh, texts of, of uh, support, but but also from <clears throat> professors in other departments. So a professor of law and a professor of bioethics both reached out to me, you know, way back when, when, when all this was happening. So I I have so much warmth for the the Queen's community that 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 is not at all what um, what this is about. And I wouldn't want it to be framed as me having anything other than. Um, warmth for, for my students and, and the colleagues and my colleagues, um, former colleagues, I guess. And, and the other thing I will say is everyone had a really bad pandemic. I had a bad pandemic in some ways, but, um, I, I saw 
horrible things that, um, that happened to my patients, both because of COVID and, and all the other ways that um, the pandemic and the pandemic restrictions uh, affected their lives. So I, you know, I had folks who were um, between life and death in the ICU for three months who weren't allowed to have their family visit. And I, uh, it was like Russian novel levels of misery and despair. Um, so I can't, I can't even somewhat feel bad about, uh, about what happened to me, I guess, like in, in contra and, and, and so I would say that if I'm, if I'm outspoken about these issues and if I'm maybe pugilistic in terms of defending this principle of academic freedom, I, I hope I'm doing it for, for these more public concerns than what happened to me. Cause I, I'm fine. I have a roof over my head. I have, I have three square meals a day and I have a family that loves me, um, so I, I can't complain. Well, that's a, a wonderful, wonderful way to put it. And I actually think it, it's a, an incredibly thoughtful way of, of putting it because so much of what we've seen of the edicts have come from people that weren't affected by what they were doing. I mean, someone who's married and has a family at home telling someone who lives alone that they have to stay at home alone and can't go see their neighbors. Someone who doesn't have a family member dying in a care home telling other people that they can't go and visit their loved one, their grandma or father or whatever in a, in a care home. So all of these things that I would agree were, were absolutely horrible. And I, I'm glad you've uh, come through it the way you have. And uh, I wish you well in this lawsuit, Dr. Matt Strauss. Always a pleasure. Thanks for coming on, Matt. Nice to see you, Andrew. All right. Thank you. That does it for us for today. We'll be back tomorrow with more of Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North. This is the Andrew Lawton Show. And I was about to tell you what we have coming up tomorrow. And now I've forgotten what we have uh, coming up tomorrow. But I am going to say on Friday, we have a great show planned looking at the trans issue from all angles, sports, politics, and a little bit on the back to school front as well, because school is heading back in, in just a couple of weeks, which I am sorry to terrorize the poor parents by realizing that. But hey, at least it's not school on Zoom. Uh, we'll talk to you all soon. Thank you. God bless and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.